Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. <clears throat> We've been going through... Ezra and Nehemiah. And the theme of Ezra and Nehemiah is out of the ruins, out of the ashes, God is going to build his people back, build his city back. And uh, what they had experienced, they had experienced the devastation of, of invasion and exile, and the whole city had just been decimated, this cataclysm. And then now they were going to build back. And then there's this movement you see, this pattern where God begins to stir in people's hearts, and he stirs in, in the great, like Cyrus and Xerxes and Nehemiah and Ezra. And then he, just, he stirs in over 50,000 the first time. Then about another 50,000 people, he stirs in their hearts to join in this great work. So he stirs, they begin this work, and then inevitably disappointment and discourage and difficulty comes and it knocks them down. And then they have to battle through the disappointment, through the difficulty, through the persecution, and get back up. And what we're looking at is that process of kind of getting them back up. And the first thing we saw last week is they have to devote themselves to the Word, be committed, recommit to the Word. And then from that, this fuels delight. And what, what is the ultimate antidote... The anecdote to discouragement is the delight that comes from the word. And so what we're seeing where we're here in Ezra or in Nehemiah chapter 8, this next two weeks we're going to look at 8, 9, and 10. We're seeing that in many ways cities are easier to build than communities. And you know when you think about this kind of life, um, it's easier to build a house than it is to build a, a home. Or you can be married, but not have a marriage. You can have a job, but not have a vocation. And there's just two things. And you think about how God builds anything. Like Genesis chapter 1, the first three days, he builds the structure, the space. And then days 4, 5, and 6, he pours it with life. And you have to have both. You need the structure and the space, but then you also ultimately need his presence and his life. And, you know, there's so many things that we're looking to this to provide what only he can provide in this. So you can have a job, but not necessarily have significance. Or you can have a marriage, but not be known and loved. You can have friends, but not have real community. And so what we're going to see here is that Ezra, Nehemiah, their original ambition was more than just building the city. They were trying to forge a people. And to build a community. And in many ways, the spiritual was more important than the, the, the civic. And so Ezra 8, 9, 10, in many ways, is one of the most remarkable sections in Scripture. Historically, it's evidence of this tremendous revival where the Lord comes in and the Spirit moves in power. And a whole host of people, 100, maybe 150,000 people are swept up and they have their lives changed. So we're going to look at this as a pattern that God gives to bring joy into his people's life. And you have this dynamic combustion of the Word of God and the Spirit of God, and they come together. To, to bring strength and joy to his people. So it's a pathway for joy. And so a couple steps. So in your bulletin, you can trace along. We just kind of have three steps in chapter 8 that move us into a place of joy. And so the first step is first kind of God's word has to enter in. Or the people have to come under the word. The word has to come and enter in. So let's look at in this first section. I just want you to notice what was their posture to God's word, and then how does that compare to your posture to God's word? Let's start in verse 1 of chapter 8. And all the people 
gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. And on the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early in the morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for this purpose and beside him stood. Now, just like last week, we're going to skip over his 13 pals who are there with them to read and proclaim the law. Picking up verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen and Amen. And lifting up their hands, they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then here's 13 more of his friends who are distributed out to help the people understand. Notice at the end of verse 7 what it says they do. It's to help the people understand the law. And while the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God. Clearly, they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So notice the first thing they do, they, they got to come under it. They want to understand it. They want to hear it. They want to receive it. And the first thing is they're all united. They have a single mind. They all come together. It's that classic phrase. They gathered as, with one accord, as one man, with one people, this unified group coming together with this single purpose. But then notice in verse 2 how enthusiastic they are. Isn't it striking that it's not Nehemiah that initiates this? It's not Ezra it's not King Darius or Artaxerxes. It's not top down. This comes from the people. They are enthusiastic. And in verse 2, it's the people who tell Ezra, get the book, bring it. We're all here. We want to have this gigantic four-day, five-day, six-day Bible study where you lead us for six or seven hours. You know, just, you know, as a preacher, that's not often the kind of thing you hear from people. Please, we've gathered hundreds of thousands of people and we want you to preach to us. And that's what they're, they're eager, they're enthusiastic, they initiated this. And, you know, one of the defining marks of when revival comes is there's a hunger that people have for the word. But if you think about it, in many ways, all joy is birthed from a hunger, a desire, so you think in your own life, what is it you're desiring? They want the word. And then notice how attentive they were. It says in verse 3 that they read from it. And uh, all who could understand. And at the end of verse 3, and the ears of all the people were attentive. Their ears were open. They were battling distractions. They were battling daydreams. You know, they were lucky. They didn't have an iPhone in their pocket to constantly lure them away. They are attentive to hear the word. Because the word can't change you unless you let it in. You can't engage with it half-heartedly or mechanically or hurriedly. They were attentive to it. You know, as a kid, I, well, I'd still have struggles sleeping, and I'd often be afraid at night and have a hard time sleeping, and I would often take my Bible, because uh, I knew the Bible was supposed to protect me and give me peace, and I would put it under my pillow and try and sleep on it. So I thought, surely if, like, uh, you know, this is going to help me sleep. And, you know, for like a seven-year-old, you know, that's kind of a cute thing to do, but that's not really how it works. 
it doesn't work by you just like laying on it. Osmosis doesn't work. Tried to do that for chemistry. It didn't work for that either. You know, somehow you have to get it into you. It has to get into your mind and then into your heart. Then it flows out into your life. But they were attentive. They were receptive. They wanted to come in. And you notice in verse 6 how responsive they were just physically. Like the body, I love. Once they hear it, they all shout out, Amen. They hear it read. And then there's almost like this contradiction that they don't know what to do with because they stand up in response to, to give it reverence and honor. And you might have come from many Christian traditions throughout history. Whenever the word is read, everyone stands as a sign of honor. But then they bow their heads, lift up their eyes, and they look to the ground because they feel unworthy. So it's this unique combination of both adoration, but then contrition. And as the word is read, it creates a sorrow for sin, but then joy in God. And so they have this unique combination. And you know you're really kind of hitting the sweet spot when you have both of those emotions, when you have both respect and reverence. You know, these things are meant to be together. You know, there's so many things in life that are good on their own, but once they come together... It's just magic. You know, it's kind of like cake and ice cream. I mean, cake is good. Ice cream is good. But you bring them together, and it's just magic. You know, ice cream cake. It's, it's, it's one of the great marvels of the universe. God's proof that he loves us because ice cream cake exists. Or you have like peanut butter and jelly. They're just better together. Or peanut butter and chocolate. They just come together. Or peanut, I mean, peanut butter and anything just is a bad combination to come together. And so you have both this, this reverence and respect and then adoration come united. And then notice how teachable they are. They want to understand over and over. Their desire is to understand, not just to know, but to have it seep into them, to understand. And so as you read through this list that you have here, how, how does it look to you? Does that describe your posture to the word? Do you uh, seek it out, want to be teachable, want to be responsive, want to hear it? That's the first step for joy is a certain attitude and posture to the word. But then the second step is it enters in and notice what it does to their hearts. It has to kind of take root, starting in verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Notice how often they'll repeat this refrain. This is a holy day. This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way. Eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because... They had understood the words that were proclaimed or declared to them. So you see, when the word comes in, the first thing it does, do you notice the first thing it does is it exposes their sin. It causes them to be sorrowful, to confess. You know, the word, whenever it's living and active and it comes to us, it always does two things. It stings and it sings. 
And you have to have both. But the first thing is it causes um, confession. They begin to weep because it's like a mirror that's held up. And they realize, all right, we don't measure up. Here's who God is, what he's done, what he's called his people to be. And we're not measuring up. Cynthia has a line that she repeats that she got from some, it's from a Puritan that we can't remember who or we give them credit. But it's, uh, it's, um, until sin be bitter, grace, salvation will not be sweet. And so first you have to taste the bitterness of sin. It has to cut to the heart. If there's no conviction, then there never will be any joy. So the first thing the word has to do, and if you, you don't have a real relationship with God, if you don't ever have conviction of sin, that's where it has to begin. But notice how it can't stay there. It doesn't stay there. And Ezra, Nehemiah, and the priests, they want to help quickly turn their attention uh, to the next thing. Notice what it does in verse 10. I love this. It, it widens their perspective because conviction of sin can be very easy to turn inward and introspective and look inward. And it wants to help them look up and look out. He tells the people, he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord. He says, don't be too introspective. Eat, drink, share, focus on these good gifts that the Lord has given you. And in the context of these good gifts, receive and celebrate. Today is a day of celebration. And real worship has moments of confession, but also moments of celebration. They have to be together. And notice what he tells them to do. Go your way. Eat the fat. Now, you heard my announcement about our Father's Day meetup. So I'm not going to make any pointed applications about what God is commanding his people to do here. You can, you can draw your own conclusions. But he tells them, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. Look out. Look in your communities. Who's not ready? Who doesn't have? Who are the poor? Take what you've been given, and this is a time for celebrate, but open up the doors. Bring everyone in. Part of the pathway to move us from discouragement to joy is celebrating what we have and serving those who don't have. Giving. This is a day of celebration. The prodigal sons have come back home and the father has prepared a feast. So if you don't have confession, you don't have a relationship with him. But if you don't have Sabbath celebration, you don't have a relationship with him. Notice that refrain, this is a holy day. Now when you hear holy, don't think, this is echoes back to Genesis 1, when the Lord made the Sabbath and he blessed it and he made it holy. So we think it's a holy day. Don't think like it's a day that somehow the sky is bluer and it doesn't ever rain or the sun shines brighter on this day. What it means, especially in the Old Testament, holiness wasn't so much a, a moral quality. It was a designation that this has been set aside for a specific purpose. So this day, the Sabbath, or what we call the Lord's day, has been set aside and the purpose is for him. It's his. So like the temple utensils that were holy temples, it wasn't that the fork was somehow a better fork than other forks. It had just been set aside for a specific purpose. So like this day and what like Sunday is for us, Sunday is not Saturday part two to get all of the things you didn't get done yesterday done today. The goal of it is to be a holy day means it's set aside for a specific purpose. It belongs to the Lord. It is his 
And part of the goodness of the Lord is that he gives it to his people as a gift to, for them to rest and renew and celebrate. And that's the command, celebrate here. This is my gift for you. And then notice what it should bring. Three things it brings, peace, joy, and strength. Do you notice their first word that the priests are supposed to bring to them is be quiet. That's like settle. Your hearts are they're restless right now. Your minds are restless. You're, you're hearing the word and it's disorienting you and you're feeling convicted. Be at peace. The God of peace, the Prince of peace who's coming brings his peace. God here and Jesus when he comes always has been and always will be the storm stopper to bring peace Calm. That's the first thing he says. He says, be at peace. And then notice, he says, don't be grieved. And then notice, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, I think I don't know if I've ever noticed until this week, just reading all of this, I've always just assumed, you know, joy is kind of a thing that we do. It's something internal to us, and we kind of make it or manufacture it. And some people are just naturally more joyful than others. And um, I'll let you guess, like in our house, who fits into what category. So you either just have it or you don't. And what really struck me this week is it's not, he doesn't say your joy is going to be the demonstration of God's kind of love for you. It's the joy of the Lord. It's his joy then becomes your strength. It's joy that's not internal to you. It's joy that's external. It's joy that you enter in, not joy you manufacture. I think so often in the Christian life, I think about joy. Maybe the categories like uh, if you've seen Inside Out, where you have the little people into you, you have like anger, you have joy, you have sadness, they're all in there. And somehow I have to like, like make joy happen. So it's like, okay, be happy. Come on, you can do better than that. You can be happy. Where you're trying to manufacture it. But this is something external to you. It's the joy of the Lord. His joy comes. And he's going to tell them because the joy... And their joy cannot be found in their external circumstances because they're not great right now. Their joy cannot be found in their material prosperity. They don't have a lot of it right now. Their joy cannot be in their social popularity because you read the rest of the book of Nehemiah. They don't have that right now either. But their joy has to be in him, from him. Their joy comes from the knowledge of who he is, what he's done, what he's said, what he has promised, what he has given. That's how you tap into that joy. You know, have you ever been around somebody where their joy was just infectious? I won't say which, but one of our kids for a while had this series where you can make certain sounds and they would just get, rip out this belly laughter that was so infectious. And I used to think, tell Cynthia, because she would post it on social media every now and again, I think our service to the world is that this stage is to put belly laughter out in the world. Because I, like, I don't know how you could hear that belly laughter and not be brought into the joy. And so sometimes you're just around people who just radiate and they bring you into the orbit of their joy. And that's what, that's what they're saying. God's joy is meant to kind of radiate and we're supposed to come into it. I was thinking this week, we even sang, Lord, give us your heart. And a couple of months ago, I read a really haunting uh, biography of one of the great kind of missionaries of the past hundred years. And it was really remarkable. I mean, it's unbelievable what they accomplished and kind of the, the thing that continually to drive them in ministry was they would pray the prayer over and over, Lord, break my heart with what breaks yours. 
But that created a certain disposition and even some of the sadness about uh, related to their family. And I wonder if it might not have been better also to add to that prayer, Lord, kind of rejoice my heart with what rejoices yours. Or help me delight my heart with what delights yours. So the joy becomes the source of their renewed strength. It's what's going to fortify them for the endurance and to help them keep going. And where does it come? You can see in this chapter, they acknowledge God's greatness. They appreciate his word. They help his people. So are these things true of you? How can you tap into his joy? And then notice step three, once it gets in you, then it comes out of you. And notice how he calls them to respond in 13 through 18. They're going to reestablish the festival of the booze. And remember, this is a continual pattern. We've seen this. This is the second time we've seen this. Reestablish this specific festival, this specific celebration. So on the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. So after the first day of celebration, the heads of the houses all come together, come back to Ezra, and they want to continue this day-long uh, study of the word. And then they find in it the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booze during the feast of the seventh month. And they should proclaim and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. And they're commanded, go out to the hills and bring the branches of olives and wild olives and myrtle and palm and other leafy trees and make booze as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booze from themselves, each one on his roof. And in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim, and all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity, they made booze and lived in them, in the booze. For from the days of Joshua the son of Nun to the day of the people of Israel had not done so, and there was very great rejoicing." And day by day, from the first day to the last day, it was seven-day feast. So seven days, he read from the book of the law, and they kept the feast for seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So how they did now, they're going to live this out. So they hear that the Lord has certain commands to do and to celebrate, and they instantly think, all right, we're not doing this. We need to instantly implement what we've heard. And then they establish this celebration that was supposed to be a part of their yearly rhythm. And we looked a couple weeks ago about what this celebration of, of booze, of tabernacles, of tents was meant to do, why they did that celebration. And there was three things that it was supposed to remind them of. It was supposed to be a time of thanksgiving for God's goodness in the past. It was a time of witness in the present and then a time of anticipation and hope for the future. So that festival was meant to be this annual reminder of God's protection and provision centuries earlier. You know, this was celebrate, you know, they're supposed to celebrate how God has redeemed them, brought them out of Egypt. So they're no longer slaves in Egypt, but they're not in the promised land yet. And right now they live in this weird in-between time where they're no longer slaves, but they're not home yet. We talk about that liminal space of the old is gone, but the new hasn't come yet. And so this was a celebration to remember you live in that space. And in that space, you need to be thankful for what he's done. You need to remember. They need to remember the natural hazards and the wild animals and the marauding enemies that he protected them from. Through it all, he brought them safely to that point. 
And that's so important to remember the past because you know in the midst of current struggles and current pressures and temptations, it's so easy to forget what God has done to bring you here. I was struck recently just reading through Exodus and how it was three days, three days after God had split the Red Sea, brought them through it, destroyed Faber's army, and brought about probably one of the greatest acts of redemption anybody has ever seen in the history of the earth. And three days later, they are complaining because they don't have water. It took them three days to forget what God had done in such a dramatic fashion. We don't have great memories for the things we should remember. And so he has established, you have to remember, remember how he sovereignly guided them, how he generously fed them, how he powerfully protected them. We need to remember. One of the reasons each week we come to the Lord's table, because that's the way we're commanded to remember Remember that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And Christ has died for you. And in him, he has paid the penalty for your sins. Your past has been healed and the penalty has been paid. Christ has died for you. Don't forget. You wonder how much of our own discontentment is fueled by forgetting the things we shouldn't forget and remembering the things we shouldn't remember. So forgetfulness is fueled, fuels the discontentment. So that's first, it was to help them remember, but it was also a witness in the present. You notice they were presently surrounded by people who didn't worship the Lord, who didn't know him, merchants, travelers, all types of people, indigenous people who had been in their, the land who had taken over since they had been exiled. And it was all types of a mixed multitude. And I love in verse 15, it says, the command is to go into all the towns and proclaim this and publish it, to preach it, to let it be known that this is who God is and this is what he has done. They're to proclaim it in every town. And then I love in verse 16, do you notice they're supposed to set up these little booths, these little tents. These are mini tabernacles and they're supposed to set them up in every location. It says they set them up in their homes, in their courts, in the courts of the temple, in the courts by this gate, in the courts by this gate. The point is that for this week, everywhere they go, they're meant to be these little tabernacles, which are little festivals of celebration. You know, this celebration that they were going to take on was meant to be a witness to the world about who God is and who they were, what he has done for them. And I just love this idea that God wants these little mini tabernacles, these mini festivals of joy in every single place in the community. Now, I won't ask you because I don't want to ask me, but the question is, are you a little tabernacle of God's festival joy everywhere you go. You know, what if he's placed you in your street, in your neighborhood, in your work, in those locations to be a mini festival of his joy? He's placed them there as a witness, and their witness is to celebrate you know, what he has done. 
And then it's also hope for the future. I love that phrase that it hits on the very last verse. They kept the feast for seven days. Then on the eighth day, there's a solemn assembly where you are now uh, committing this next season and stage of life. That's the point on the eighth day. So seven days are one full cycle. On the eighth day, it's the start of this new season and new cycle where you look forward. And so you, you remember what he's done in the past. You receive and celebrate and get filled by his grace now, but then you turn in hope to the future. And I love how in the Gospel of John, one of the things he uses that eighth day language to say, we now live in the eighth day, the first day of new creation. Christ is risen, the Spirit has come, and this is the first day of new creation as he is making all things new. So how does joy come? It joy comes when we celebrate, and we celebrate, we look back, we look up, we receive in the now, and then we look forward. And so as we close, there's two ways we want to do that. We want to first do that. Uh, we want to celebrate and, and give thanks to the Lord. This is a season. We're also celebrating our graduates. So if you were here last week in our in-between brunch, we had these wonderfully beautiful, uh, tasty cookies that some were, were made to look like little baby rattle kind of things, the, the, the light pink ones. And then we also had the graduation cookies. And a couple of people asked, said, oh, well, what are the graduation cookies for? Because we're celebrating uh, graduates this, this uh, month as well, not just celebrating new babies, but also celebrating uh, big babies who are now going off into the world. And so over the next couple of weeks, this week, we'll, we'll pray for and celebrate a couple of our high school graduates. So uh, Dale and Miranda Peacock, their daughter Maddie is graduating, and we pray for her earlier. And Chad and Kim Tanetti, their oldest son Braxton is graduating. So we'll uh, pray for him. And then next week, we have some of our wonderful med students, uh, Nathan and Lucy, who are graduating. And we'll pray for them. My five-year-old, who's graduated from preschool, wanted to know what kind of party we're having for him. And so we'll throw, we'll throw them in the mix, too. We'll pray for them. But we want to you know, look back, thank the Lord for the goodness in their life, and then look, look up and look forward. And then we'll have our time of communion, which we do those three things as well. But let's pray for, let's pray for our graduates and also pray for our educational institutions and our schools. But Lord, we give you thanks for for Braxton and Maddie. I thank you for the way you've uh, loved them and put them in such wonderful, loving families and given them tremendous opportunities uh, to grow and to learn up until this point. And so we give you thanks for your good gifts that brought them to this place. And then now in this new season, as they turn to a new day, pray that you would uh, be those three things, that you would be their peace, that you would be their strength, and that you would be their joy. Pray for their, if there's any... Um, anxiety, anxiousness, any doubt or worry, whether it be in mom and dad's heart or in their hearts, we pray that you would calm it and pray that you would uh, give them excitement for this new stage. And then we commit the future to you. We, we commit to them this next, uh, commit to you their next stage. And we pray that it'll be a tremendous time of learning and growth and grace. And this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.